Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya January 31st, 2012, in Radhadesh. And they have a system here in Radhadesh that every Tuesday there's a class on a topic which is assigned to one. So I, do, I don't choose the topic, it's given to me. So one Tuesday it's given by a teacher, and the next Tuesday it's given by a student, and all the students have to come, which is why there's so many people here. <laughs> They're required or they don't get their diploma. So the topic that I was given was preparation for the Grahasta Ashram. So in Krishna book, Prabhupada says that our term of material existence continues because of this Grahasta Ashram. And right after that he says, and then Krishna shows how you can sanctify the Grahasta Ashram. So both those things. I mean, we might think it's rather odd If our goal is detachment from maya and attachment to Krishna, why would you ever want to enter the grahasta ashram just so you can get back out of it again? You ever thought about that? Right? The whole idea of getting in the grahasta ashram in the one end is so you can get out at the other end. So why go into it at all? Why not just stay out of it? So Jaidur Tamara says, when people ask him if he's ever married, he said, I saved myself the trouble. Uh, But we're going to look at the purpose of the Grahasta Ashram. So I put a little outline here on the board. We'll look at the purpose of the Grahasta Ashram, both for the individual and for society. And then we're going to look at when, ideally, to enter the Grahasta Ashram, who you enter it with. (laughs) We're not possibly, in the amount of time we have, going to be able to cover this subject fully. So I got to be one of the people working on the founding of the Grahasta Vision Team in North America. Ras Prabhu was also there. He and Hanuman helped us put together a course on the Grahasta Ashram. I think it's 30 hours? Yeah, about 30-hour course on the Grahasta Ashram. And we don't even pretend that that covers the whole subject in depth. Rather, it's an overview. Okay, so let's look at the purpose for the individual. And... I'm hoping that something in this class will be of surprise, that each of you will find something surprising and interesting and new in this class that you didn't already know. Okay, first is a progression. We're going to look at a progression of independence. A progression of independence. Or you could look at it as a progression of dependence. So a a progression of independence on worldly supports, on fallible soldiers, and a progression of dependence on Krishna. So first there's brahmachari life. Brahmachari life literally means student. And technically, in the the actual society, it's when you're a child. So a child is very dependent. A student is very dependent The brahmachari is dependent on the guru, on the teacher, literally. So in the 
in the ashram where you lived with the guru. And by the way, not all Vedic gurukulas did you live with the guru. Just like Mahaprabhu ran a day school. He did not run, run an ashram school. Uh, but Krishna went to live with his shiksha guru. And there you're dependent. All you're doing is studying. We have this idea in modern society also that when you're a student, you shouldn't have to earn a living. That your parents or the society takes care of you so that you're free to study. And the traditional brahmachari uh, would collect money for the teacher and give it all to the teacher. Didn't have any personal money, had very few, if any, personal possessions, didn't have much personal space, was having a very, very simple life with the idea of concentration on study. All of one's energy was given to study. And then uh, most persons go on to get some more independence. I mean, that's one of the reasons why people marry. They want their own money. They want their own kitchen. They want their own place. <laughs> they want to decide what they're going to be doing in, in the daytime, right? This thing, that thing. I mean, when I remember living in the Brahmacharini ashram, so at 9 o'clock I did this, and at 9 at 15 I did this, and at 9.30 I did this, and at 9.45 I did this. That's like when you're a student, isn't it? You have this class at 9 and this class at 10 and this class at 11. And there's these compulsory classes that you have to take and you can't go off the campus property without permission and so forth and so on. Uh, now these things are becoming more relaxed in modern society. But it used to be like that. You couldn't have someone visit your dorm without permission of the dorm leader. So Grahasta life, you no longer have this kind of dependence. Right? You're earning your own money. You have your own place. And you have actually more responsibility. Now, when Prabhupada talks about training children, he talks about discipline, that the little children don't have much discipline. And then you gradually increase it from age 5 to 10, and then 10 to 16, he says you're as strict as a tiger. And then at 16, you treat your child as a friend. Uh, so this idea, you're now a friend. Just like after I, I got my doctorate degree, I wrote a letter to one of my professors, Dear Dr. English. He said, you don't call me Dr. English anymore. You call me Fenwick. He said, you're one of us now. <laughs> We're colleagues. So you get to the point then where you're a friend. Actually, one really nice lecture, Prabhupada was saying, he was chastising the devotees for growing their hair long. And he said, the problem is after age 16, if you chastise someone, they will break. He said, chastisement, that's for the... He said, the guru must chastise the disciple. Parent must chastise the child. You must correct. Even Mother Yasoda is correcting Krishna. Don't steal the butter and give it to the monkeys. Right? She says, you need to grow up and be an honest gentleman. <laughs> says, I don't want you to grow up. She didn't mind because it was his butter. But she says, I don't want you to grow up to be a thief. <laughs> but Robert says, if you chastise someone after the age of 16, if you try to correct them, they will break. Uh, so then one enters into the grihastha ashram, that one is no longer under this uh, tight, this is what you do at 9.15, this is what you do at 9.30. And then vanaprastha ashram, Prabhupada says in 5.18.13 purport, he says this is the independent retired life for cultivation of spiritual knowledge. So then you get even more independent. In vanaprastha life, you're supposed to be independent even of depending on your... Varna for your livelihood. Whatever Krishna arranges, 
You're no longer so dependent on the general society. You go live in the forest. You're dependent on the fruit trees and the roots that you dig up in the forest. And then Prabhupada says sannyas is completely independent. He says this in a Bhagavatam lecture in New York in 1975. He says a sannyasi is totally independent of the society. And he said this kind of sannyasa is not so possible in the present age. Therefore, generally, this kind of sannyasa is forbidden. But this concept of depending more and more and more on Krishna and less and less on something external, to internalize, how we say, let the teachings of the guru become one with your heart. So the training in brahmachari life is it's very external. Here's your schedule. This is what you have to do. Turn over all your money. I give everything to have nothing for yourself. And then gradually internalizing that so that one is internally dependent on Krishna and externally independent of the material society. So grahastha life is for this progression of independence. Then another purpose of grahastha life is for a progression of sense control. I'm sure you're all familiar with the yoga system. And one of the items, the beginning of yoga system is yam and niyam. What you do, what you don't do. And you have to come to prachidhara, where you can withdraw all of your senses from the world. Krishna talks about this like the turtle that can bring out the senses or withdraw them when necessary. So this training of the progression through the ashrams is also to become fully detached from wanting to enjoy the senses independently of Krishna. Right? One wants to satisfy Krishna's senses, Rishikena, Rishikena, Rishikesha, Rishikena, Bhaktir, Sevana, Uchite. One should satisfy Krishna's senses. So material life means I want to satisfy my senses separately from Krishna, just like Srila uh, Prabhupada I told my father in 1976. He said, just like if you eat good food, you'll get good eyesight, but if you put the food in your eyes, you'll become blind. And he's got this picture of people sticking carrots in their eyes, you know. <laughs> so our problem is we're part of Krishna. Mamai vamso jiva loke, jiva bhuta sanatana. But I'm trying to satisfy myself independently. Instead of taking the food and putting it in the mouth, I'm just trying to rub the food on my hands. Right? And it is true that we get some nourishment through the skin. You know that, right? Like sometimes there are medicines that you can put a patch on your skin and some medicine goes, goes through the skin. So you get something, but it's a drop of water in the desert, <laughs> right? If you just try to eat like this, you'll probably get something, but not very much. You'll starve. So this is what we're trying to cure ourselves from, trying to enjoy separately from Krishna. And this trying to enjoy separately from Krishna manifests particularly in sexual desire. That's the epitome or the uh, essence of, of how it manifests. So that's a whole other class. <laughs> uh, but we can try to briefly summarize. Prabhupada in 5.25.5 and in Majja 8.138 describes that sexual desire is inherent in a spiritual body. Do you all know that? Okay. So that means it's part of the soul. Interesting. Huh? Which means you can't kill it. I'm sure that many of us here have tried to kill sexual desire. And what do you find? Does it work? Does it work? Anybody find it work? No, it doesn't work. So what happens when you try to kill it? 
It comes out again in some other form. Like a balloon, you push on one end, it comes out some other place. It may come out as anger, which is called the younger brother of lust. Sometimes we see these. That happened to Vishramita. So first he was attracted to Shakuntala and lived with her for some time. And then he said, I'm not going to make that mistake again. And then when Ramba came, he got so angry. I remember if he burned her to ashes or turned her or something. He definitely, definitely did something not very nice to her. So that, then he also fell down from anger, right? Lust, anger, and greed. So repressed sex desire turns into anger or turns into hard-heartedness. You just try to stop everything. Have you ever seen even devotees sometimes become like this? Right? We've seen practically, you know, that some we get some like nasty, angry, hard-hearted people from trying to kill sex desire. So that's not what you do with it. What's the original? What's the original way that the jiva enjoys sexual pleasure? Do any of you know? Enjoys actual spiritual sexual pleasure. Very nice explained in Majja 8.138. Yes. Yes, to see that Radha and Krishna are together. To please Krishna. And Radha Rani is the Ladini Shakti, the pleasure energy of Krishna. Anytime you please Krishna, Radha Rani must be there. <laughs> Has to be. She's his pleasure energy. She's the Ananda. So when one brings Radha and Krishna together or Sita Ram, like Hanumani wants to bring Sita and Ram together, then the jiva is also satisfied. The jiva also feels ecstasy. This is yoga. What is yoga? Connection. So we want to connect Krishna with his pleasure energy. And I want, I want to be the catalyst to connect Krishna with his pleasure energy. Therefore, we were talking the other day about Om, how Om is Radha, Krishna, and me, according to Jiva Goswami, or the Hare Krishna mantra. That's why when we chant Hare Krishna, we can lose material sex desire, at least while we're chanting. Prabhupada talks about this. He said, at least while they're dancing in the kirtan, they forget this. Uh, So this is the essence. So we're trying to come back to that. We're trying to turn lust into it back into its original form of prema, of love. Very nice to explain in the Bhagavad Gita where, where Krishna says, therefore, from the very beginning of life, curb this great symbol of sin by regulating the senses. And Prabhupada says, from the very beginning means from the very beginning of life. And he says, if you, if you always have love of Krishna, it never becomes lust. He said, once you have lust, it's difficult to turn it back. It's like trying to turn yogurt back into milk or something. You know, it's hard. <laughs> it can only be done with grace. <laughs> so that's the essence of our process of bhakti. If you want to put bhakti in a nutshell, it's turning lust back into love. Taking that, taking what in this world is sex desire and bringing it back to its original form. Okay, but that doesn't generally happen in a moment. I can. And there are some people for whom it happened in a moment, like the son of Maharaj Prataparudra. But generally, it's a gradual process. So what we're in Prabhupada says gradually and proportionally. So you're and it's very nice to explain to Madhuri Kadambani this gradual and proportionally. So you're taking down lust and you're bringing up love. And when you get to somewhere to forty to seventy five percent, then you're fixed, and you're, the remains of lust are not so disturbing. 
but you're gradually turning it back. But what do you do with the material part of it in the meantime? You've got to do something with it. The sexual energy is very, I'm sure we've all experienced, unless there are any children here, it's very powerful, isn't it? I mean, it must be, because... Look, let, let's look at the statistics. Too bad that Maharaj, that Yadunanda Maharaj isn't here. He'd know all the statistics. And Prabhupada refers to this. How many of our sannyasis have fallen down? Prabhupada talks about this in 9.18.40. So one person's calculated that one-third of the persons who've initiated devotees in the Hare Krishna movement have fallen down. One-third. And practically every one of them has been due to sex life. Maybe maybe one or two exceptions, but maybe one with drugs, which became also sex life. It's not so easy. Now, what do you do with it? So therefore, there's the ashrams. And my, my own analogy for this, it's like if you have a broken arm, how do you fix a broken arm? What's the cure for a broken arm? A cast. But you know, when you first break your arm, if it's a really bad break, they'll also give you painkillers. Did you know that? And you know, these painkillers, they actually help the healing. Because when you're in a lot of pain, your muscles become like iron. I was in a car accident a few years ago, and uh, I finally had to get some treatment from an osteopath. And she said, when there's an impact on the body, the muscles become like iron to protect the body. She had to protect the spine. Right? So when you have an injury, you find that, right? Sometimes your body tenses, and then you can't heal properly. Now, are, are painkillers the cure for a broken arm? No. Suppose you just took painkillers. Would you cure your broken arm? No. What would happen? It would, you'd re-injure it, wouldn't you? Because you wouldn't feel the pain, you'd re-injure it. And you don't keep taking the painkillers. Maybe the first week... <laughs> Not ongoing. So there's two kinds of painkillers to deal with material lust while we're turning it back into prema. One is renunciation and one is the grahasta ashram. Both are dealing with this. And generally it's a progression. So first you're trained in the brahmachari ashram to be very sense-controlled, to do everything for the pleasure of the guru. You're seeped in the chanting of, the, of mantras, like we were talking the other day, the Brahma Gayatri Mantra, the Hare Krishna Mantra, you're seeped in the study of the Vedas, you understand the higher purpose of life, you're trained in austerity. Prabhupada said the Brahmacharis, they were happy to collect alms and sleep on the floor. They thought it was fun. So, I mean, I remember when I was young, and those of you who are still young, you know, it's fun to go camping. It's, it's fun. Or people come here for the kirtan weekend and they're sleeping on the floor with 20 people. We saw all the mattresses in the classroom, you know, 20 mats. It's fun. You go out in the Sankirtan van and you're sleeping in the back of the van and cooking in the back and it's fun. You know, once you get to be 60, it's not quite so much fun as it is when you're young. And the children get this taste for austerity. They actually relish this austerity. And then most people go on to the Grahasta Ashram. And Prabhupada explains in 5.119, he says this gives the facility to engage what he calls the strong waves of youthful life. Because what happens to most people if they don't marry? 
it, it, it goes into something sinful. I mean, we have to say, what, what to say? And this is very nice in the instruction of Yadu. When Yadu was asked by his father, Yayati, please give me your youth. And Yadu says, my dear father, I would love to give you my youth as an obedient son. But if I do that, my spiritual progress will be hampered. I, I won't be able to become a pure devotee of the Lord. It'll be blocked. It'll take more time. And Prabhupada writes in that purport, unless one fully satisfies these lusty desires in youth, there is a chance of being disturbed in rendering service to the Lord. Therefore, this progression. So I think of it also in that conversation where we were meeting with Srila Prabhupada in 76. So my oldest son was maybe a year and a half old. And he was sitting on my lap. And he had a habit that 45 minutes he could sit on my lap in a class completely silent and motionless and just listen. And after 45 minutes, he'd start playing with my keys and my watch and something. And after an hour, it was over. You know, I couldn't keep him in the class anymore. So 45 minutes went by, and he's playing with my keys, and an hour went by, and he's getting restless. And one of the devotees brought me a plate of luglus. So I started feeding him luglus. <laughs> Actually, also one of the devotees came up to me and said, if you keep feeding him luglus, he'll become a grahasta. <laughs> He did become a grahastava, I don't think because he ate luglus when he was one and a half years old. <laughs> but the point is you don't train children in proper behavior by feeding them sweets. That's not a good child training method. Shh, be quiet, I'll give you a sweet. But it may be useful temporarily. Right? Eat this sweet and shh, be quiet so I can hear the class. So grahasta life is very much like that. It's a sweet for the mind. The mind is going, but I want money, and I want my own kitchen, and I want a car, and I want nice clothes, and can I want all those things, you know? I want a wife who's going to say, oh, my hero. <laughs> you know, and I want a husband who's going to say, I love you. You're so beautiful. You're the most beautiful woman in the whole world. And my mind is going, I want that, I want that. We say, here, take a luglu and be quiet. <laughs> so that's, that's basically the purpose. You know, that when one is in youth and these desires are very, 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 very strong, that for most people, they need a luglu. Otherwise, they'll disturb the Bhagavatam class. <laughs> okay. And then there's a progression that you go to the Vanaprastha ashram. I understood more about the Grahasta ashram by entering into the Vanaprastha ashram, which I've been in since 96, than I ever did by being in the Grahasta ashram. And when I went into the Vanaprastha ashram, I said, this stuff really works. I thought the Vedas are, are really great shastras. Because then when the mind says, I want this, you said you already had it. Be quiet. And the mind says, oh, yeah, okay. And that's it. You know, and after some time, the mind only complains once or twice a year for a minute or two and says, look at that, I want that. You said you already had that. Oh, yeah. Okay, fine. And you can be peaceful. Why? Not because, please, please don't misunderstand this, not because it was so terrible. 
Okay? A lot of people think like that. Well, you have to go through the Grahasta Ashram because then you'll see that it was just a stool pit. You know, I, we used to hear sannyasis, all former sannyasis, speak like this. You know, it's just this pit of filth, like this hellish planet, you know? But it isn't. It's like everything else in the material world. It has its, you know, good sides and its bad sides. It has its pleasures and the prices for the pleasures. And you said, you know, okay, I got that and I paid the price and okay. It wasn't so great and it was a pretty high price and, you know, let's move on. It's really simple. And then you can be peaceful. And Prabhupada says that grahasta life is for making the mind peaceful. And then the Vanaprasta ashram, you remove your dependence. You no longer think, you know, I have to earn money in the world. I have to have my family for my happiness. And then you can come to sannyas life, which is complete fearlessness. So one way you know whether you should be a renunciate or a grahasta is how fearless are you. If you're thinking, you know, what about money? What about security? What about my old age? What about this? What about that? You need to be in the Grahastha Ashram. And if one is thinking, Krishna is going to take care of me, Krishna is my maintainer, Krishna is my protector, everything's fine, I just have to serve Krishna with no problem, then you can be in a renounced ashram. All right, let's look at, we looked at the progression of independence, we looked at the progression of sense control. Now we're going to look at the progression of yoga. Progression of yoga. So generally one starts out, which is related to a progression of sense control, generally one starts out in this material world as a vikarmi. Let me enjoy my senses by stealing. And modern society is a society of vikarmis. Take whatever sense pleasure you want, and for goodness sakes, don't pay for it. (laughs) You know, don't listen to these religions that tell you you should pay for it. Get away with as much as you can. And the bigger a thief you are, the more glorified you are in human society. You know, oh, that tennis star, he had 20,000 girlfriends and didn't marry any of them. What a hero. You know, this is a mentality. So this is vikarma. Karmakanda is, I'm supposed to engage in jagya. I still have a mood of enjoyment, but I know I'm supposed to pay for it. This is the mood of the sakama devotee. You're not really interested in the person you're paying. You're interested in what you're getting. You're thinking of Krishna as your order supplier. You go to the shop. You don't care about the shop owner or the shop workers. You know, you just go there to buy something. But at least you buy it. You don't steal it. So then you can enjoy it honestly. Of course, you're still in the cycle of karma. Then karma yoga, and now we go to uh, the reference for this, by the way. And if I had time, I would have read the whole purport. It's a wonderful purport. Is Brahma Samhita 561. We're here, uh, Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasvati gives the most beautiful, I think, explanation of the path of progression of yoga and how one turns worldly activities into transcendental activities. So karma yoga, or there Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasvati says may also be gyan yoga, is where you're not acting anymore for sense gratification. You're acting for purification. This is sattva gun. Tamagun is I steal. Rajagun is, I pay. But my purpose in both is sense gratification. You can think of sattvagun, I do the right thing for the right reason. Rajagun, I do the right thing for the wrong reason. Tamagun, I do the wrong thing for the wrong reason. 
So Rajagun, you're paying for it, but your purpose is still sense gratification. Subtle and gross. Honor, prestige, I want to be dharmic. Think of the righteous kings. You know, I want to enjoy the world righteously. And Sattvagun is I'm doing the same things, but I'm doing it for purification. Ultimately, I'm doing it for liberation. And that becomes, so that's karma yoga. Kama pala tiaga. You give up the fruit of your action. What's the fruit of our action? Swarga. Either after this life, I want to go become Indra. Like who was saying that in class the other day? Somebody was saying that just a couple days ago. One is is, uh, engaging in celibacy so they can enjoy all the maidens of heaven. You know, so that's, that's, that's the fruit of karma. I want to go to heaven or heaven in this life. I want to have a heavenly life. I want to have a happy married life with wonderful children. I can put the bumper sticker on my car. My children are honor students, you know, and put up their pictures. Here's my doctor's son, and here's my lawyer's son, and here's my beautiful wife, and my big home. And So karma polity, you give up that. You're not, you're not working for that anymore. Not even on the subtle platform. Bhaktivinoda Thakur says three kinds of rasa, physical, emotional, and spiritual. So the emotional he calls swarga rasa. So one, one doesn't want to enjoy any more heavenly delights. One is doing one's activity as a matter of duty for purification. So that's karma yoga and jnana yoga is when by doing that, it's so nice to explain the 12th chapter of Bhagavad Gita, by doing that I've realized who I am. It was so nice what Janavi said talking about kirtan when she was doing kirtan and Srivas Angan, she had this realization, I'm not this body. So by working without fruit of results, one realizes, I'm not this body. But we're not interested in just karma yoga or jnana yoga, or as Bhakti Santa says, even jnana bhakti yoga. I'm interested in what he calls bhakti proper. So there, I'm not stealing. I'm not paying so I can enjoy with Krishna's blessings by the laws of karma. I'm not working even for liberation or my own purification or knowledge. The way Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati puts it is, I'm transferring it to Krishna's account. So nice. We used to do a drama called The Wrong Bank Account. Do you remember seeing that? The guy putting money into the bank his whole life, then when he goes to take it out, he realizes he's been putting it into the wrong account. So that's exactly like when the hand's trying to feed itself. You're putting it into the wrong account. You've got to put it in the mouth. So bhakti proper means I'm putting it into Krishna's account. What does this mean practically? I'm not serving my husband so that he'll tell me I'm the most beautiful woman in the world. Which, by the way, he should tell me that. That's his duty. But that's not why I'm serving him. I'm not serving him to get that. I'm not serving him so he'll give me children. I'm not serving him so he'll maintain me financially. I'm not serving him so he'll give me a house. I'm not serving him for the mental thing of, I have a husband. I'm socially acceptable. Whatever. I'm serving him to please Krishna. I'm putting the money in Krishna's account. I'm not telling my husband he's my hero, so he'll tell me I'm beautiful. I'm telling him he's my hero because that's what Krishna wants me to say to him. Just like we did a drama recently in Govardhan of Krishna Lila. You have a script. Right? You're following the script. Why? So everybody will say, oh, good actor. 
wow. So Krishna is going to smile and the Vaishnavas will smile. Krishna will be pleased. Prabhupada said, the residents of Vrindavan, they're working just to see Krishna smile. So you're taking care of the children. Why? So Krishna will smile. You have this mood that I'm going to serve my family. Like Bhaktivinoda Thakur said, I'm seeing that... What do you say? I'm going to find this directly. He said, for your service, I will earn money and bear the expense of your household. This is your house, Krishna. I'm taking care of your house. These are your devotees. I'm taking care of your devotees. So you will smile. By the way, when one does this, one becomes free, even in household life. One doesn't have exactly the same kind of freedom as in the Vanuprastha or Sanyas ashrams. That's a kind of an external freedom. But one gets an internal freedom because one's no longer dependent on other living entities for one's happiness. As Krishna explains in the Bhagavad Gita, that a self-realized soul has no need to depend on any other living being. And this is why Lord Kapiladev says, if the woman thinks that her husband is the source of her wealth and her children, it's death for her like a hunter calling for the deer. Or if the man is thinking, this woman is the source of my happiness by her cooking, by her sex life, She's, without her I would have no pleasure, then he's finished spiritually. But the source of my happiness is that Krishna is smiling at me. And one does one duties better. <laughs> like Rupa Goswami says, the woman who has a paramour, she does, she's a better wife because she doesn't want her husband to find out. So in Grahasta life, our real lover is Krishna. He's our real lover. He's the one we're really trying to please. The wife may think, oh, my husband is, is always trying to please me. And the husband may think, my wife, she's such a good wife. She's always trying to please me. And the children may think, my parents, we're number one to them. But it's not true. The devotee parents, the devotee spouses, they're working for Krishna. So when the wife says, oh, you're my hero, or the wife says, you know, you haven't fixed the plumbing, I've been bugging you for three months, it doesn't matter to the man. His happiness isn't dependent on whether he's the hero or the rascal. Because he knows, I'm not serving my wife to get this, I'm serving my wife to please Krishna. And very nice, Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasvati says, we're putting it in Krishna's account. Why? What do we get? We have to get something. You have to work for something, you know. We're not impersonalists. We're working for Krishna's favor. And we accept that as his prasad. Like Sudama Brahmana, he accepted his mansion as prasad. He accepted his poverty as prasad also before that. That whatever Krishna gives, that's his prasadam. And we relish prasadam. It's not that we don't relish prasadam. But we relish prasadam as bhakti. Wow, Krishna gave this to me. Just like if someone gives you a gift and you relish more the person, your relationship with the person, the qualities of the person more than the gift. If someone gives you a gift and you're just absorbed in the gift and you forget the giver, that's not satisfying. I mean, it's better than going, oh, what would you give me this for? <laughs> but that's not really what we want. We give gifts for relationship. So whatever gifts Krishna has given us in any ashram, but we're speaking about the grahasta ashram, Whatever money he's given, you know, if your wife does smile at you, at least a fourth of the time, 
or your husband is nice to you a fourth of the time or whatever, and if you're really fortunate and it's up there with the 90%, you take that as Krishna's favor. This is Krishna's persona, how kind the Lord is. And when your wife's crabby, your husband goes in his room and closes the door, doesn't speak to you for a day, that's also Krishna's favor to remind me that I'm working for Krishna. You know, when your little child says, Hi, Dita, hi, Dita, 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 hi. I remember when my daughter did that. That was during the Christmas marathon. She was about a year old. And every day we'd go out and just read books, and then the women would come together in the evening, and we would read Krishna book and have hot milk. And one day my daughter started chanting, Hi, Dita, hi, Dita, 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 hi, hi. And the next morning the town president called me to his room and said, You're not allowed to hang out with the Sankirtan Brahmatrinis anymore. I said, Why? He said, now they all want to get married. <laughs> Have a little chanting Hare Krishna child. So, you know, when the child chants Hare Krishna and when they vomit at two in the morning, because they do both. You know, it's not just one. <laughs> they don't just vomit at two in the morning. <laughs> for those of you who think Rahasta life is like that. And they don't just chant Hare Krishna, for those of you who think Rahasta life is like that. You know, and either way, it's Krishna's prasadam. It's Krishna's mercy. It's Krishna's mercy I get to serve this devotee. It's Krishna's mercy I get to serve them in their illness. It's Krishna's mercy I get to serve them in their chanting. Interestingly enough, uh, Bhaktisanta Sarasvati says that this instruction given in 561 is for those below the stage of bhava. That for those at the stage of bhava, they have no need to transcendentalize their activities. Okay, so we've looked at the uh, progression of yoga And we'd like to look at this uh, a little bit more deeply. I don't have much time, but a little bit more deeply in terms of this relationship between sacrifice and pleasure, specifically for the different ashrams. So in order to make this progression from vikarma to karma kanda to karma yoga to gyan yoga to what Bhaktisanta calls bhakti proper, you have to know what is the enjoyment of an ashram and what is the sacrifice to get that enjoyment? What's the legitimate enjoy? What's the legitimate enjoyment of the brahmacharya ashram? Study. What's the requisite sacrifice? Dependence, submission, and study. <laughs> Do you follow? In order to enjoy study, you have to take the sacrifice of study. Do you understand? In order to get the enjoyment that someone else is taking care of me, and I don't need to worry about that, I have to have the sacrifice that someone else is taking care of me and I'm not taking care of myself. Does that make sense? It's always like that. So what's the sacrifice and what's the pleasure in the grahastha ashram? Money. You get to have your own money, and you can use half of it to buy what you want, as long as it's not sinful things. And what's the sacrifice? No, that's a different pleasure. What's the sacrifice? You've got to earn the money. <laughs> okay? You can enjoy the money, some of it at least, in a righteous way. You've got to earn it. And you've got to give in charity. You can't enjoy all of it. You've got to earn it in an honest way. You can't cheat. You can't lie. You can't steal. Honorably. You have to earn it honorably. Sorry to disappoint some of you about this, but you've got to earn it honorably, and you've got to give some of it in charity, and then the pleasure is you can enjoy some of it. 
You can buy a chair. <laughs> in early ISKCON, none of us had chairs. I remember one time when I was in late pregnancy, we, we bought an uh, outdoor chair, you know, those plastic folding chairs. And my, my uh, parents were visiting, and my mother said, oh, early outdoor. So, you know, you can buy a chair. You can buy a silk chatter. Oh, you can buy a juicer. <laughs> nice speaker system, you know, whatever. You can do that, but then you have to do that sacrifice. Okay, another pleasure is the enjoyment of the opposite sex. Gross sex and subtle sex. What's the sacrifice? You got to put up with the opposite sex. It's not easy, by the way. We're, men and women have very different psychologies. We don't, it's almost like, you know, one person speaking Russian, one person speaking Chinese. We don't really, you have to, have, you have to take all these courses, you know. I mean, how do men work anyway? <laughs> you don't get it. So you have to put up with that. You have to put up with, with the different needs. What does a woman need? What does a man need? You have to serve the other. And you've got to stick to the, that, that member of the opposite sex that you married. You can't just get rid of them if they gain weight. You know, or their hair turns gray. And they're not so attractive anymore. Or you find out that you know, your husband leaves his dirty socks lying around or your wife only cooks nicely three times a year, whatever, you know. You can't just quit. You can't just say, I'm going to get a new model. So that's the requisite sacrifice. And what else do you get to enjoy? This is interesting. You get to enjoy the full use of your psychophysical nature because where does one really engage in one's varna? In the grahasta ashram. You know, and then what's the sacrifice? You've got to do that properly. You have to be a proper Brahmin or a proper Kshatriya or a proper Vaishya or a proper Shudra. We could have a whole discussion on that. Right? If you're a Brahmana, you're supposed to protect knowledge. If you're Kshatriya, you're supposed to protect people. If you're a Vaishya, you're supposed to protect all the world's natural resources and the animals. If you're a Shudra, you're supposed to protect the arts and the skills. You're supposed to take care of those things and use them in Krishna's service. Okay? And then you also get to enjoy the children. What's your sacrifice? You've got to take care of the children. <laughs> You've got to educate the children. You've got to feed them and clothe them. Okay? And other main sacrifices of the Grahasta Ashram, Prabhupada says, are deity worship. He says if, if uh, Grahastas do not engage in deity worship, he says their fall down is positively assured. Ah. That's in 752324, if you don't believe me. And also the grahastas are responsible for funding all of the jagyas in society. All right. So when do you enter into the grahasta ashram? Now, many of you are not going to like this part of the class. I apologize, but oh well. Okay. <laughs> so in Bhagavatam 117.38, Prabhupada said, direct quote, must be compulsory marriage. He says, girls maximum 16, boys maximum 24. I told you you wouldn't like it. 
In a lecture in, in Vrindavan in 1976, Prabhupada says this, uh, this attraction between men and women is natural. He says this hankering, before the hankering becomes madly and one becomes spoiled by sex indulgence, he should be married. This is a psychology. At a certain age, 12, 13 for women and 15, 16 for men, they become very, very much sexually hankering. If they marry at this age, their unity will endure. It will never break. There will be no more divorce. Now, of course, the problem is in modern society, you cannot get people married this young because we don't have a support system in the society. When people married at this age, they were part of an extended family. They lived with the parents, generally with the husband's parents. Not always. Sarvabhama Bhattacharya was taking care of his daughter and son-in-law. So, but they lived with the family, with the village. But illicit sex was practically unknown in this kind of a society. So a lot of the reason why we have late marriage in modern society, part of it is just the breakdown of society, breakdown of extended family, breakdown of village, breakdown of support. You get married today, you're on your own. Nobody helps you out. You know, you don't have a mother-in-law, mother, father, auntie, uncle to give you support. In the beginning of ISKCON, I mentioned this in another class, we got rid of all of our elders. <laughs> we stopped talking to our parents, most of us. You know, we were all like under 30. We were all 15 to 30. We had no elders. The only elder was Srila Prabhupada. And so we didn't know how to do anything. We didn't know how to treat a husband, how to treat a wife, how to take care of children. I mean, it was just a really... Not a very, and it wasn't a society. But the other reason why late marriage is propounded in modern society, first of all, it's being propounded very strongly by the zero population growth people. Because if you get married later, obviously you'll have fewer children. Duh. You know, so they're pushing, they're trying to push the age of marriage as late as possible. And in Hungary, I was at a devotee sponsored ecology conference, and one non devotee professor was speaking. And he said, we want, he said this, he really did. He said, the reason we want to limit the population is so that each of us can get more. He really said that. He said, you know, those Americans, they were really down on the Americans. He said, those Americans, they're, you know, taking a disproportionate share of the world's resources. And we all want to do that, he said. So therefore, we want to have as few children as possible. Whoa. Of course, Prabhupada said that Krishna can maintain so many children. What's Krishna's problem for maintaining children? Even right now, there's enough resources to feed 10 times the world population. And you could fit the whole current population into the state of Texas with everyone having about 1,000 square feet. So the problem isn't too many people. The problem is too many sinful people. And, and wrong use of the land, using the land to grow coffee and tea... Uh, misappropriation of resources, you know, countries where food is thrown in the garbage and other literally thrown in the rubbish bin, countries where the government is paying people not to grow food. So there's a heavy propaganda for late marriage. And another heavy reason why there's a propaganda for late marriage is this mentality of stealing. So when people marry late, are they celibate? Yeah, exactly. Or if they're, even if they're, you know, physically celibate, they're not psychologically celibate. We do not have the right to steal emotional sense gratification from the opposite sex without paying for it either. So to be a so-called renunciate and have your own bank account 
and be flirting with members of the opposite sex. You know, if you're a man, to have a lot of women telling you a hero, and if you're if telling you you're a hero, and if you're a woman, you know, having men admiring you, that's stealing. So we have a mentality in the modern age of stealing. We say, yeah, I want to enjoy the pleasures of the grahasta ashram. Sure, but I don't want to pay for them. So let me say externally a renunciate and steal from the grahasta ashram. By the way, we also have people in the grahasta ashram that want to steal the pleasures of the renounced ashram, which I haven't talked about in depth in this class because this class is supposed to be about the grahasta ashram. The main pleasure of the vanaprastha and sannyas ashrams are freedom. Prabhupada says independence. But you've got to pay for that. How, how do you, just briefly, how do you pay for your freedom? Austerities. What's your austerity? You don't have a house. You have the freedom from a house. <laughs> you don't have to pay the rent. You don't have to pay the mortgage. You don't have to worry about the plumbing. You don't have to worry about the neighbors. But then you don't have a house. You don't have a place where you keep your things. You can't say, I know my shoes are going to be over here tomorrow. You don't know where your shoes are going to be tomorrow. You know, someday you're going to eat nicely, someday you're not going to eat nicely. You can't control it anymore. You can't say, I'm going to shop and I'm going to cook this. So that's the sacrifice. Right? And you're free from trying to impress the opposite sex or trying to make the opposite sex happy. What's your sacrifice? That you no longer try to impress the opposite sex or make them happy. So, yeah, it is nice to be free. It is, folks. It's really, really nice to be in the Vanaprastha Ashram. I highly recommend it. It's great. I love it. But you can't steal that when you're in the Grahasta Ashram. You can't say, well, I'm going to be in the Grahasta Ashram. You know, I'm not. I hear so many people say this. Yeah, I'm going to become a Grahasta. No kids. No earning a living. No house then don't become a grahasta. Make up your mind what you want to do one way or the other. And this idea, you know, stay brahmachari as long as possible, what that really ends up becoming is people who are, you know, getting neither ashram. And by the way, a little secret. If you try to steal things, you can't enjoy them. Right? Prabhupada says this very clearly in the Bhagavad Gita, that a thief cannot be happy. The irony of this world is if you try to enjoy something without paying for it, you don't get to enjoy it. If you want to enjoy something, even materially speaking, even if you want to be materially happy, whatever that means, there is some material happiness, not much, but anyway, there's something. If you even want that, you have to engage in karmakandi. You have to pay for it. You just, you just can't. You can't do it. You can't say, I'm going to take the pleasures of the Grahasta Ashram and the pleasures of the Sannyasa Ashram and put them together and pay for neither. <laughs> You'll enjoy neither. If you try to, to steal from the renounced ashrams as a Grahasta, you won't get the benefit of Grahasta life. And then you'll be exactly what Prabhupada talks about here. That you'll, then when you try to become renounced, you'll be disturbed. I just recently met somebody like this. She said, oh, I'm really suffering. Why? My husband left me for another woman. Why? Well, I didn't really want to have any grahasta life. I just wanted to be austere. And he decided at a certain point, I want to be a real grahasta. 
I said, well, I guess now you just take up the renounced ashram. And then I saw her again a year later. And what do you think? She's with another man. Oh, is this your husband? Oh, well, he might become my husband. So if one, try, if one is a phony grahasta, it doesn't work. It won't purify you. If you're a phony brahmacharya, it won't work. You've got to be the real deal. And you actually have to go through it properly. And part of that is the age. So in 427.5, Prabhupada said youth is 16 to 30. In a lecture in, in 66, New York, he said 16 to 40. In a letter to Hayagriva, Prabhupada said, if you get married after age 30, marriage will probably not be so pleasing. So our advice is, please marry when you're young. Another advantage of marrying when you're young is that then you can end it when you're still young. Does that sound terrible? Maybe they should have asked someone else to give this class. So, you know, you, you come out the other side, you're still young, you still have some energy. You're not like, you know, if you get married when you're 70. Hare Krishna. You know, and then you try to be a, a, a world preacher, you know, and you're like 92. And you should surrender to Krishna. You know, how are you going to do it? You can't do anything. So it's really nice. You know, you've done it. You've had the husband. You've had the wife. You've had the money. you had the house. You had, you know, the nice jewelry and the nice sari and all that kind of stuff. And the woman wearing the nice jewelry and the woman wearing the nice saris. And then your kids are grown up and they're married and they're on their own and they're happy or they're not happy or whatever they're doing and you're, there you are. And you still have energy from Mahaprabhu's movement and not only energy from Mahaprabhu's movement, you're not disturbed anymore. You're stable. And we have, I mean, we, and, and you, can, you can say to people, I did that. You know, it's very hard to help people with something that you have no experience with. Well, this is also a problem. Okay, we should also say that there are those who can avoid going through that process. There are those who can immediately become renounced. How do you know if you can immediately become renounced as a young age? First of all, you're fearless, actually fearless, not the false fearlessness of youth thinking that you're always going to be young and invulnerable. <laughs> that you can, you know, jump off a cliff and you won't die because you're young. But actual fearlessness, you don't worry about money, you don't worry about security, you really, you really are dependent on Krishna. You're not trying to steal emotional gratification from the opposite sex. You really got to be honest with this. You know, do I want the men to admire how beautiful I am? Do I want the women to admire how strong, how clever, how talented I am? You know, is that part of my motivation? If that's part of your motivation, then you need to just do it and pay for it. You know, so you look at that kind of thing. What am I doing with my material sex desire? If you're not going to use it in grahasta life, you have to use it to make, as Prabhupada said, the greater family. If you're not going to use it for children, you have to see the world as your children. I mean, what is sex life? Connection, pleasure, creation. So you have to be able to have connection, pleasure, and creation on a higher principle. You can't just say, I'm not going to care about connection, pleasure, and creation. You can't do it. Please, I'm begging all of you. You can't do it. It's part of the soul. Don't try to kill it. You can't kill it. If you're going to be a lifetime renunciate, then you're connecting with the whole human society. 
you're really getting deep pleasure in the chanting of the Hare Krishna mantra and in pleasing Krishna. And you're using your creative energy in Krishna's service. You're doing something with that original energy. All right, who to marry? So Krishna says, Krishna himself says to Rukmini that marriage should be between equals. And Rukmini, very nicely, she said, equal in social standing, beauty, riches, strength, influence, and renunciation. Don't try to have a marriage between people who are not equal in renunciation. doesn't work very well. And Srila Prabhupada says that married life would be miserable, this is in 6226, if people are married who are not of the same nature. Now, what do we mean by the same nature? We basically mean the same varna. So there's some propaganda in ISKCON that women don't have varna. So if women don't have varna, we have to throw out a whole bunch of the Bhagavatam. <laughs> you have to take whole sections of the Bhagavatam and toss them in the Ganga. And how is this equality of varna understood by birth? So those people who say, well, maybe women have varna, then they say, well, that's dependent on the, on the varna of her father. So I've always wondered this, like when Krishna says, chatur vanya mayashristam guna karma bivagashat, he doesn't have another verse after that that says, for women it's janma. If you find it, I'd like to know. Sorry to be a little sarcastic, but I get tired of being told women don't have any personality. <laughs> have you ever met a woman who had no personality? I mean, people, some people think that a man can marry any woman and she'll just become like him. If that were true, then when a Jamil was with the Sudrani, she would have become a Brahmana. But she didn't. And Prabhupada says specifically, he said, if a man of the Vipra quality marries a woman of the Shudra quality, life will be miserable for both of them. So how does Prabhupada say Varna is determined? He says you must look at astrology. He says this in 9.18.23, in 3.21.15, and in 6.2.26, and as well as a number of places. Astrology would mean that it's some quality of yours, it's not just your family. So there should be of equal quality. And for two reasons I can think of, I'm sure there's more. One is for psychological compatibility. And the other is for practical compatibility. And this may be revolutionary to some people. But women actually help their husband earn a living. Okay, the Vedic woman was not only a nappy changer, a dishwasher, and a floor cleaner. My dear friends, someone who only does that in their life is called a domestic servant. Okay? And there, we have no quarrel against domestic servants. You can be a domestic servant and go back to Godhead. But it's not that every single person in a female body has only the inclination and the qualification to be a domestic servant. It just isn't true. You know, if, if, any, if, if any of you know, we all know some women, right? <laughs> Everybody knows some women. You know your mother, your sisters, your daughter, your somebody. And you know that every one of those women doesn't have only and solely the qualification of a domestic servant. And Prabhupada talks about, he said, we see the weaver. The wife is weaving and the husband is weaving. Or the wife is spinning, the husband is weaving. He said the potter, that they're helping in the same occupation. Draupadi was helping her husbands run the kingdom. The occupation of a potter's wife and a queen is not the same. So one reason for equality of varnas is so that the husband and wife can work together that the woman doesn't have to work independently to fulfill her varnic nature. And the very last thing we'll talk about very briefly is Prabhupada says that girls should be trained when they're young to be chaste and faithful, 
and to be expert cooks. And boys should be trained in a specific training for a livelihood. He says that in 276. He said Gurukul means to be trained in values and also for a specific livelihood. So we've looked at the purpose of Grahastashram. And as I said, I've just touched on things. And sorry, I've gone all the way to the end of time, so no time for questions. I apologize. The purpose of Grahasta Ashram from the individual, progression of independence from Maya and dependence on Krishna, progression of sense control, progression of yoga. For society, we didn't talk about this, we'll just mention, what does society get from the, from the Grahasta Ashram? Honest wealth, honestly earned wealth, good population, and morality and peace because there's not illicit sex in the society. When do you get married? When you're young. When you need it. When do you take the painkillers? In the beginning of the injury. <laughs> you don't need them later on. You take Rahasta life when you're young. As Prabhupada says, the strong waves. And before you go maddingly, what does he say? Madly. Before you become madly. <laughs> who do you marry? Someone who's compatible. Someone who's your equal. Someone who shares your varna. And you also take some specific training. The boy should make sure that he has a livelihood. The girl should make sure that she knows how to serve the husband. So I want to thank you very much. Anything I've said that offended any of you, please excuse me. Anything that you found useless, not applicable to your situation, uh, because we all have crazy situations now at the present time. I'm sure what I've said only applies to like 1% of you. So anything that I've said doesn't apply to some of you, please feel free to ignore that. If you're thinking, what about me? Where do I fit? You can always still chant Hare Krishna. And Krishna... And Krishna somehow or other works it out, okay? I've been discussing plan A. Uh, they're also plan B, C, D. And, and even if you're in plan Z, you can still go back to Godhead because Krishna's with you. Uh, thank you very much. All glories to Srila Prabhupada. I was a Grahasta for 23 years.